Welcome to You're the Boss, a mantra for anyone who's ever had to face their own fears, struggles, and even failures. Join host Larry Roberts for a deep dive into overcoming limiting beliefs and identifying where our pasts can shape us rather than define us to build a lifestyle and business filled with passion and purposeful leadership. Now your host, Larry Roberts. What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of You're the Boss. Today, we are joined by Ron Klein. Ron is an ordinary man who accomplishes extraordinary things. He's a problem solver. Every solution has resulted in monumental change, either in a new invention or a simple solution. His innovative ideas have literally changed the world. He's the inventor of the magnetic strip on the credit card. Sure, we're all familiar with that. He's also responsible for the credit card validity (laughs) checking system and the developer of computerized systems for real estate, multiple listing services, and so, so much more. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Larry, for having me. This this is an honor. Uh, No, it's an honor on my end, seriously, but... You know, I think you may have some haters out there. At least I, I know for the, from the husband's point of view, because that magnetic strip on the back of that credit card, that's empowered a lot of, well, that's hurt a lot of bank accounts. <laughs> Larry, let me, let me tell you, the women in the world love me, but the guys, I don't think so. <laughs> they throw darts. <laughs> they try to throw those credit cards away is what they try to do, but that's not going to happen. So no, 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 no. Tell me more, man. I mean, You've impacted, I mean, it's not every day you speak to somebody that's literally impacted this the globe. <laughs> this old, that's, that's right, <laughs> what I thought you were going to say. You know, I don't speak to somebody this old every day. No, it's, you know, it's great to be able to, to be on your show and tell the story because people love stories. And I've had a lot of ups and a lot of downs, and I learned a lot of things along the way. But basically, Larry, I simplify everything. And Everybody, a lot of people classify me as an inventor, and I don't sit in a think tank all day and hold my head. I, I dress myself more as an innovator. Okay. If I see a problem, first of all, I don't think of anything as a problem. There's situations and there's challenges. So there are no such things as problems. And I, I, t- I tore that page out of my dictionary and threw it away, and I highlighted the word challenge. And so I say that... If, if things are pretty much just a situation, then I determine, can I make that situation better? And by simplifying it and enhancing it. And if I enhance that situation, now it becomes a challenge and I make it better and I make things better for people in the world. So, and, and a perfect example is the, one of the simplest things I ever did was the magnetic strip on the credit card. I mean, that's the one that just marveled everyone, but when a large department store came to me and they said, we have a problem. And I said, well, first of all, I'm a trained engineer and I'm the, I was always the liaison between the technical department and the clients. So the client would come to me and they would say, we have a problem. And I said, well, not, it doesn't sound like a problem. It's probably just a situation. And they said, well, it takes too long to make a charge purchase. And that's what they called them back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. This was the mid-60s that they came to me. And I said, well, that doesn't sound like something that's not solvable. And then they said, and the burdens are on the wrong person. The burdens on the merchant. It should not be on the merchant. And every month, the major credit card companies would give every merchant a big, thick book of all the negative account numbers. And I said, well, let's solve it. That's simple. Let's just take all those negative account numbers, put it in some kind of memory system. In those days, it was a big magnetic drum. And then I said, we'll give the the merchant a little keypad and he'll key in the number that's on the card. And if it doesn't come up on the the magnetic system, they're good to go. I said, that's pretty simple. And they said, well, that sounds good. Let's try it. And all my, my intention at that time was to enhance what they already do and make it better. I had no idea that what I was on the fringe of is changing the world on how they make credit card purchases. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, I can think back and, you know, I'm I'm going to be 50 this year, but I can think back to where we were still taking the credit cards and laying them on the little slider there with right. carbon copy and going over it and, and, and coming from that perspective. But, I mean, there was already magnetic strips on the cards at that time, wasn't there? Well, 
Well, before that, I put the magnetic strip on in 1964, and the patent was awarded in 1969. But before that, they had to give the merchant this big, thick book with all the negative account numbers, and he would run down with his finger. They were chronologically in order. He would run down with his finger and see if your number was in there. If it wasn't in there, then he would squish you the thing and, and make the little receipts and so on and so forth, and you were good to go. Well, when I put up all that information on the magnetic storage and then gave them a keypad, it really would speed things up tremendously. They were very pleased, but it still didn't solve the problem that the burden was still on the merchant to accurately put the number in. And right around that time, reel-to-reel tape recorders came out. And I said, geez, being an engineer, I got a great idea. I understand, you know, you get two reels and a motor and the you can record voice and songs and music and so on and so forth. I said, if I take a little piece of that tape, record the account number on it, and then build a little gadget that mimics a tape reader and make you the motor. Okay. So <laughs> paste that little piece of tape on the back of the card. Okay. Record the account number on it. You're the motor. You slide it through this little gadget and it reads it, sends it up to the memory. If your number's not in there, you're good to go, and, and off it went. So that was the invention of the magnetic strip and the credit card. I mean, that sounds so simple. I have to imagine that it's more complex today. Has it evolved over the years? Or? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, the patent was 35 pages. I mean, wow. you know, it, synchronizing, making sure that it, it wasn't sensitive to speed, and so and so forth. So it grew tremendously. I mean, but the thing that's so interesting, the magnetic strip, lasted many, many years through this world of obsolescence all the way up into the little chip. And the reason it lasted so long is the magnetic strip doesn't contain any energy. Okay. And in science, anything that doesn't contain energy can't radiate, can't transmit. So all it was was a piece of tape to be read. It wasn't something that if somebody came up with a scanner, could energize the tape and read your information. So that's a reason why I'm not a great fan of the chip, because once you energize that chip, thank you. If, if I'm in behind you in the line and I have a little scanner, I can compromise your information. So that's why when you carry it around in your wallet, it should be in a shield. It should be in a sleeve that's shielded so nobody can come up and energize your back pocket or the woman's purse and steal that information. So, and I've, I've heard of, of having sheaths for our cards now, but I kind of, kind of lean towards it just being a little conspiracy theory scenario. So you, with the chips that are enabled now and an RF reader can come up and, and literally energize your card. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's why you should keep it in the shield. Actually, it's no different than wrapping it in a piece of tinfoil. Wrapping it in a piece of tinfoil shields it so that you can't energize that chip. But when you sl slide that chip into the machine yeah. and they had to build all new machines, there's little fingers that come down and make contact with that chip and energize it. Now it's a little computer. And then what they have inside really minimizes fraudulence at the point of sale. With the magnetic strip, we never had fraudulence at the point of sale. But, you know, the man in the middle and down at the server, you never know what's going to happen. But it's still used in many, many different areas. Even you can still go shopping and even if, unless you've got a chip card, I mean, you still use the magnetic strip. And I guess right. that's one of the reasons it was so easy for people to steal your information at the gas pumps. Because yep. even I've had that happen before where somebody got a hold of my information because I swiped at a bad, uh, they had a reader there at the gas pump and snagged my info. Yep. But the whole point I'm making out here is the simplicity of being an engineer. I was able to figure it out myself. If I couldn't know how to, if I didn't know how to do it myself, I would have hired somebody. But that's the whole approach with you take about what's the given. The given was it was too slow and the burden was on the wrong party. And what's the goal you're looking for? Speed it up and take the burden off the merchant. It's like the old word problems when we went to grade school. <laughs> you know, they would stuff the word problem with, with so many ancillary functions and so many minutiae kind of things. But you had to sift out what's the given, what's the solution we're looking for, and that's what you do. So you're solving a situation. It's funny that you put it that way because I know going to school, everybody hates the word problems. Just give me the problem. I don't care how fast the train is going and if there's another plane right. coming in from the east. 
I don't care about all that. Just tell me how I can answer this question and, and, and pass this test. And the given is I'm at point A and I want to get to point B and I'm traveling, traveling this how many miles an hour, how long is it going to take me? I mean, that kind of thing. Yeah. You don't need whether she's wearing a black hat or the, the hubcaps are shiny or so on and so forth. And I think it's hard to, to sift through that because I've, I've played that role in, in the corporate uh, arena. I, I was a business intelligence analyst, so I would actually work with the end user and analyze a problem that they're having within the company and then take that back to the IT department and translate their issue uh, to code speak for the programmers. So then our programmers would write some in-house code to overcome the challenge that they were facing in the distribution center or in the accounting department or wherever it may be. So you don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer. Well, I, did I just set myself up for that? I think I, <laughs> <if> it, <laughs> No, 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 no. I wasn't directing that at you, Larry. <laughs> no, I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. All I was saying is, did I isolate the situation? Because problem is a dirty word. Problem is creates frustrations and that's no good. Yeah. So you have a situation. Can I turn that situation into a challenge and find the gift behind that challenge and even find the opportunity. And that's what I did because look what happened. It turned into a tremendous opportunity. And then from that, that opportunity moved me on to other things. And I started a big company and built MLS systems and have voice response for banking. And then I got involved with the New York Stock Exchange. And that was an interesting project. But my whole mantra is simplicity. And what can I do to enhance what you do and make it better? And provide a benefit. How do you tackle those problems? Because, and I think this could be beneficial for so many listeners right now. If there's an opportunity to learn how to kind of step back and get rid of all the ancillary issues that are presenting themselves within the challenge and look at the root, do you, do you think that that is a, is that a personality trait or is that something that can be learned? It's something that can be learned because what you have to think about in any facet of business, sales or life is minimize the work for the amount of person for the minimize the work that the person that you're talking to has to do. Nobody really wants to work, but if you minimize the work, they'll listen. And, and the listening thing is goldfish have an attention span of about nine seconds. Most people have an attention span of about eight seconds. So if you don't get your point across in the first eight seconds, you lost the person. You know, I, I always say I refuse to have a battle of wits with an unarmed person. So it's my responsibility to make sure that I transmit what it is that I want to say in the first eight seconds. So I want to minimize the amount of work because if I'm going to give them a lot of work, all of a sudden it's a blockade. So this is not going to be a lot of work for you, Larry. Honest. Okay. And the other thing that I want to say is that I'm going to enhance what you presently do. Okay. I understand what you do. I'm now going to enhance it and I'm going to make it better. And then the last thing it's, that's going to happen from this enhancement, I'm going to make sure that there's a benefit. So I captured your attention. No work. I'm going to enhance what you already do and I'm going to provide a benefit. Now, do you want to hear the details? I do want to hear the details. There you go. <laughs> you got me hooked. Within that first you. eight seconds there. You know, it's, it's interesting because these concepts that you use, even in creating the, the magnetic strip for the credit card, you've utilized the same principles coming up with much, much more complex solutions for other challenges. Oh, yes. Talk to me about that evolutionary process. Did, did, did you come to recognition because of the magnetic strip? And did people start reaching out going, wow, we have this challenge? We're presented with this uh, other challenge over here. Can you help us do this? Because it seems like so many of your inventions, very technical in application, but they are over a wide variety of applications and industries. So tell us more about how you eventually broke into these other industries and started becoming the go-to guy for these types of, of solutions. Well, when I built the company, first of all, one of the things I had to solve my own problems. And in solving my own problems, I learned how to solve other people's problems, which I now address as situations. But the credit card thing grew rapidly. And right behind that was MLS, which was another simple approach of 
people at point A, people in New York want to buy or sell a house and they're going to move to California. And when they get to California, it'd be nice if the realtors knew what these people wanted. So information. And there was one central location in Chicago called the National Board of Realtors. So I was saying, when you go to list a, a property, take all that information, put it in one central location, and now give them the ability to query it. So it was a simple task, but it, it got quite involved and I was building a lot of machines. My company grew rapidly because I started it in the mid 60s. And in the mid 60s, there was no such thing as software. That wasn't even a word that was invented yet. Yeah. Everything was little printed circuit cards with resistors, transistors, and capacitors, and resistors, and trans- all, all kinds of widget gadgets that implemented with flip flop circuits, implemented what you were trying to make happen until programming was able to do that through computer processing. So I grew with lots of engineers, lots of draftsmen drafting up and drawing the, the cards, the layouts, manufacturing people, putting the facilities together. So what happened was my business was growing. At the same time, I did voice uh, uh, multiple listing for real estate. I came up with the voice response for the banking industry, which is doesn't make too many people too happy today. <laughs> Let me jump in there real quick too, because I mean, that's a whole different level of technology. Originally, we're talking about some, some magnetic, magnetic data storage uh, for the MLS. It, you essentially built a, a big database of, of listings. And I know I'm super simplifying that, but I mean, that's what it sounds like. Uh, but now we're getting into voice recognition and, and that is a totally different industry. And I personally have a hard time wrapping my brain around going, okay, I can understand data and database structures and queries and that sort of thing. But then now I'm talking about utilizing voice. And that is just, it's just mind blowing. So talk to me about transitioning from data to voice, unless of course you're going to respond and go, well, voice is just more data. (laughs) Ron Klein simplicity, right? (laughs) The simple guy. And this was back in the early days. So being an engineer, I looked at how do you fix things? And I figured the touchtone phone had just come out. And I figured, you know what? The touchtone phone is like whistling Dixie down the line. That's loaded with information. Every push button is made up of two tones, an X tone and a Y tone. So that when you push that button, I discovered that it's two tones. Well, with those two tones, I could do anything. I could put in numbers. I could make it, if I pushed it three times, I could look at the alphabet. So I was able to do quite a bit. So are you responsible for the original texting? Are you, are you the guy that we need to talk to about having to those original flip phones where we're trying to text and we had to hit the, the, the nine button three times to get to the Y and the a button twice to get to the B. Is that your creation? I'm sorry, Larry. (laughs) (laughs) That is too funny. That's so awesome. My apologies. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that was you hit me with that because I can remember those those early cell phones and just sitting there taking 20 minutes to try to text by hitting buttons multiple times. Early in your in your introduction, you said I changed the world. You definitely did. You definitely did. You know, but it's amazing to sit back and realize exactly how much you impacted the world, and the fact that I'm sitting here talking to you right now is kind of mind blowing. But anyway, to simplify and carry it quick. Yeah. The voice response was so I could push keys and make data go down the line. Yeah. And that's when we would call up a computer and it would go make, make a lot of noise the joining together the yeah, old modem yeah, yeah. with the AOL principle. Yep. Well, I would connect to the bank's computer and I would send down tones. Those tones would be interpreted as data. That data would then be looked at with the account number, somebody would put their account number in. And now I had a big magnetic drum because that's what we had for memory. Mm-hmm. And each position on the drum had a, a read head, a record and a read head. And I recorded every possible symbol to make conversation up on that big drum. And then the bank computer would convert the tones to a syllable that would apply. In other words, if, if it was tone number two, it would look for syllable number two that would sound like two. But remember the first voice response, it sounded like mechanical stuff. Yeah, yeah. 
until I synthesized it. But all I did was take a digit and convert it to a, a uh, an audible sound. And the audible sound would select and say, which what sounds like a two? What sounds like a hello? What sounds like a, a dollar sign? What sounds like this? And it would just search the, the syllables on the drum and then speak that back into the phone. That's how simple it was. That's that's really not that simple, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds simple, but to the to the average cat that's out there listening right now, that's that sounds that sounds super complex. Well, I would say if you're an engineer, I would say, Larry, I don't know how to do this. Can you do it for me? Well, there's that's, that, yeah, yeah. But I did it. That's uh, that's amazing. And did you did you learn to write code, or were you writing code at the time? Help help me understand how you were doing that, because I mean, I've um, I've, I've heard ancient yeah. stories of punch cards for code. And, and I wasn't around back in those days when they were, as soon as they first started writing programs, but what were you using back then to, to design this stuff? Oh, I can't even remember the name of it. It was so simple. What was the simplest programming language? And I taught myself that overnight. Oh man. As far back as I remember, I think Pascal was about as far back as I oh, go. No, 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 no. Before <laughs> the sim- what the lay people would use the real simple DOS? stuff. No, even before that. Oh wow! I'm, I'm testing my memory. Yeah, but I was I was not a programmer. Okay, I needed okay. some help, and I used I can't remember the name. It's okay. It, it was a simple language, a very simple language. Everybody knew how to do it. Yeah, I can't. I, I don't recall off the top of my head going back that far. Like I said, that maybe probably... listeners will be listeners will be dialing in and saying, "Well, what was this?" Yeah, okay, I, rem- I remember when I was programming back in 1974. Yeah. We were, you know, <laughs> but... but I was not a programmer. And remember, all of this was in the 60s. Yeah, I did MLS in 1967. I did the credit card in 1966. I did voice response in 1968, and then I really have a very interesting story as to after I sold the company and got back into getting involved with the New York Stock Exchange. That's a real interesting story. Well, then share that with us, please. Because, I mean, that, uh, that's a huge jump there as well. Well, what happened was, as my company was growing, I had up to 125 people making little widget boards and circuit boards. It was a big company because it was a lot of work to make sure. all these little printed circuit cards and build racks with wires and shove these cards in to accomplish what I was trying to accomplish. I needed money. So I went to investors and this was in the sixties. And I said, I need money, private investment. And they said, well, you're going to need a a, a, a private memorandum to put together and so on and so forth. Well, I raised three quarters of a million dollars in the sixties, which was like $10 million then Yeah, just to be able to buy inventory and buy stuff and pay, make the payroll so I can ship and collect. And it, the company continued to grow. And I figured, I went back to the investors and I said, I need more cash to build this stuff. And they said, well, okay, let's have an IPO. I said, what's that? And they said, you know, go public. And I was a young engineer. I said, what's public? And I figured public is those little outhouses in, in the backyard or something <laughs> like that. And they said, no, we're going to, we'll, we'll do an IPO. We'll have an initial private placement on the exchange. You know, they get the exchange. I said, I know nothing about that. And they said, well, we've got to get an underwriter, write a prospectus, and so on and so forth. I went to the library and got the 1934 Securities Act, the book, the book read it cover to cover. I became an expert on S1 and S2 registrations and IPO prospectuses. And I took the company public, raised another couple million dollars. And I was fat in cash and we were going strong. <laughs> and a major insurance company came to me and said, you know, we like what you're doing. It makes a lot of sense. We see a lot of potential areas. We want to acquire your company. We'd like to buy you out. And I was reaching retirement age right at that point. I was 34 years old. And I figured, oh, okay, it's time to retire. Did you just say 34 <laughs> years old was retirement age? <laughs> right. <laughs> Because my background was, you know, I came from a very working class family in Philadelphia. I was a street kid and I didn't know from any of this stuff. My, my dad was a postal worker. My mom worked in the department store. I had just come back from Korea. I was in the, I was drafted and I was in the Korean War. So, and I was learning fast and I figured, well, let me try it. So I 
agreed with him. I had bought myself a boat. I went fishing. I was down on the seashore on the, on the Jersey coast. I fished for three days and I was doing fantastic. And I went crazy. You were bored out of your mind. I said, I got to go to work. (laughs) This is ridiculous. How depressed I was. People were getting in their cars every morning and going to work. I went back to the company and I said, I'm going to give you all your options back. I said, I want to be released from my contract. I want to be free. I have to go to work. I'm used to working 18 hours a day, hard work, and I'm not happy. And they said, okay. So I kept a little bit of the cash. I figured, okay, what am I going to do now? And what I learned was I don't want a, a big company with a lot of employees. I want to have total control and I want residual income. Whatever I do, I want it to give me monthly income. Sure. So I said, until I learn what I'm going to do, I'm going to sell other people's products and just be a rep. And I formed a little company and I started calling on some of my old accounts. And I called on one of my old uh, accounts that I did some, was selling some stuff to, and it was Associated Press. And I said, I'm going to sell them. I was trying to sell them modems. And while I was sitting there, I saw a bid sheet from Western Union on the guy's desk, upside down. And I said, wow, this is cool. I said, what is that? And he said, oh, you know, we're in the communication business. He said, we buy lots of surplus teletypes that have been refurbished by Western Union to do all our stuff. And, I, and he said, we have so much inventory. He says, Ron, we have no interest in that at all. And being a simple-minded guy saying, I'm looking for, you know, inspiring things. I said, well, are you interested in the bid sheet? He said, no, go ahead and take it. He said, they put bids out every week for used teletypes, Model 33s and the old stuff and Twix and Telex and so on and so forth. And he said, they're up in Allentown. That's only 60 miles from where you live. I was in New Jersey, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And they said, go up there and take a look. Wow, this sounds interesting. I went out and hired a U-Haul truck. I drove up there and I went and I said, what do you have? And they said, your timing's pretty good. We're just going, we're divesting ourselves of all of our teletype equipment because we're going into the satellite business and we've got 12,000 of old, old teletypes for sale. They were the ones that were used on battleships and they're the old 83 B3 systems and they have paper tape punches and readers. And they were great because the major companies like RC and AT&T and uh, ITT, they all use teletype parts. I figured I could buy these things, refurbished, strip them down, just sell the parts for 50 cents on a dollar. So I bid on them. Big, big mistake. <laughs> no. <laughs> you won I, them. <laughs> I bid pennies on a dollar. And I, I get a notice from Western Union, congratulations, you won 12,000 teletypes. Fantastic. I own them like for nothing. But you have to take possession in 30 days. I never forgot to ask, where are they? Well, 4,000 were in, an Allentown, in a warehouse in Allentown, which was only 60 miles from my home. Great. The other 8,000 were all over the country. Dallas, Chicago, L.A., and these things weighed hundreds and hundreds of pounds. And I was told, got to take possession in 30 days. What am I going to do with them? They're going to put them in my garage? 8,000 of these monstrous units? Yeah. So I figured, what do you do? What would you do, Larry? You better get on the phone and start selling. 8,000 teletype calls. <laughs> I don't know what else. You put I me on the spot, the, Rod. <laughs> I called the junk man. I called the junk man. And the junk man came and I said, what the heck do I have here? I said, I got a problem. I have a liability, not a, a windfall profit. Yeah. I said, well, let's look and see what you got. Said, you got printers, you got keyboards, you got paper tape punches. He said, we opened the bottom up. They were loaded with electronics, loaded with hundreds of circuit cards. because these were used as communication devices. They were on the battleships, you know, wiring back to the seashore and so on. So he said, well, let me examine these cards. He said, you know what? These cards were built in the 1950s when gold was very cheap 
and it has great conductivity, all the traces are gold traces. He said, they're not using tin or aluminum or anything. He said, if we take this gold, these cards, and submerging them into a cyanide bath, the cyanide will eat this gold circuit off, submerge it to the top, it'll be salts, gold salts, we'll skim it off, and we'll sell it, do an assay on it, and split it 50-50. I said, sounds good to me. <laughs> they took thousands of these cards, submerged them in cyanide, sold the gold. Gold at that time, and this, this was right at 72, went from $35 an ounce to $700 an ounce. We were so fat in cash, Larry. I had tremendous cash from all the gold, but now I had 8,000 pieces of pure junk. Yeah. They don't work. They're no good. They only have keyboards and printers in cases. So what do I do? I called the junk man back again. And I said, hey, I got a major problem. Now when you created junk, I got a lot of cash, but lots of junk. And he said, well, let's discover this. He said, the cabinets are very rich in chromium steel because they were out at sea and they didn't want them to rust. And I happened to know that there's a major automobile, foreign automobile dealer now bringing their cars, and I won't mention the name, although I did mention it was Toyota at the time. <laughs> they brought their cars into the U.S. and they have a tremendous rust problem on their bodies, and they're looking for any place they can acquire chromium to put into their steel. And I said, put them on ships and get them out of here for nothing. Just get rid of them. I got rid of all the things. They put them on the ships, loaded all that stuff over, took them over to, the, to uh, Japan, and got rid of them for me for nothing. Wow. Now I'm in business with 4,000 teletypes. I can refurbish, refurbish or sell the parts, a lot of cash, 60 miles from my home, and I'm in business. Man, that's that only, is crazy. That's the beginning of the story. That is crazy. <laughs> I wish we had time to hear the rest because that is, that's, it just, everything just kind of falls into place. It just seems like. And, and Can I do the rest in maybe 10 or 30 seconds? Yeah, please. Okay, this is a quickie. After this happened, three months later, I get a phone call from the New York Stock Exchange. We understand that you happen to have 273 special type of teletypes that are wall-mount units that we use as inquiry stations on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. We called Western Union, and they said, we liquidated all that stuff and sold it to a little company in New Jersey. <laughs> okay. Um, are you guys interested in selling these things? I said, sure. And we happened to have those 273 wall-mounted teletypes that they could hang them up and make inquiries. And I said, rather than sell them to you, I'll give them to you for a full payout lease over two years. At the end of the two years, you'll own them for nothing providing you give me a maintenance contract to maintain them on the trading floor of the exchange as long as you have them. And they said, well, certainly, we don't want to maintain them. I was now in the maintenance business in New York City on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange, maintaining 200 teletypes with 73 spares, making good money. I was charging them $55 a month just to service them, run around with, with their two-way radio. If one would crap out, I hired a technician to replace it with one of the spares, put it in my car. I take it back to my little shop in New Jersey, repair it, take it back to the exchange the next day. I was in business. While I was there, I'm seeing all this opportunity because all they did was have little pieces of paper, punch cards, mark sense cards, and the paper on the floor was knee high at the end of the day. Everything was vacuum tube where they would send it upstairs for automation and scratch pads and all that stuff. I said, I can automate so much of this. And I came up with the idea for program trading and do a little bit of PCs and program trading for them. That worked good. And I'm looking at my clock. All right, so what I did basically was I looked around on the trading floor of the exchange because I was there every day. And I saw that stocks traded automatically with Bloomberg units and so on and so forth. But they also had the bond market which was corporate listed bonds that anybody that traded their stock on the New York exchange traded their debt on the exchange too, corporate listed bonds. But it was an auction market. These guys are throwing their hands up and down on a bond trading floor, on the phone, buying and selling and trading bonds. I figured, that's ridiculous. Let's automate that. So I came up with a system of a little box 
with a, ver- a, a, a boob tube, you know, a, a video tube yeah. where they can actually see what's going on as it's coming down the line with just this little filter box and it would work great. I went to the exchange and I said, I can automate this. I could do this and it did so great. And they said, Ron, they've been trading like this for 208 years. They're not going to change. And I said, well, if I could do something, would you give me an exclusive contract to disseminate corporate listed bonds on Wall Street to those bond traders if they didn't have come to the bond trading floor? They said, certainly, we'll sign that because it'll never happen. Yeah, yeah. They signed this tremendous contract with me. I built the system, hired a programmer to do it, built a little system, bought a little box with a circuit card in it. It worked beautiful. I start getting on the phone, calling all the bond trading offices. And if I wasn't buying or selling a bond in the first 30 seconds, clunk, they they hang hang up up on me. Yeah, yeah, they don't have time for that. I figured I just built this wonderful thing. How the hell am I going to sell it? So I befriended the biggest bond monitor, monitor manager on Wall Street from the largest firm. And I said, I'm going to run a private lease line, telephone line, from the New York Stock Exchange to your communication room. I'll pay for it. I'm going to give you a magic box with a, a video terminal free of charge for 30 days. I'll pay for it. No cost. You'll have information on what's going on on the bond trading floor instantaneously. Can I do it? He said, sure, Ron. Why not? I put it in, installed it. He had it for two weeks. His phone rang off the hook. All the bond traders on the bond trading floor said, Joe, what the heck are you doing? We can't buy or sell a bond. You're topping everything we come in with because you, what, what are you doing? He said, oh, you need one of those Ron Klein boxes. They said, what the hell is a Ron Klein box? And he's explaining it to them. My phone rang off the hook. Yeah. There were 1,500 traders that called me in 90 days, and they said, we need one of your boxes. And I said, hmm, well, it's going to cost you $10,000 each trader to join my club. They said, wow, that's steep. They said, well, we can make that back in a month. Okay, got to join my club. And I said, but you also have to buy the little filter box and the video terminal. And they said, oh, no, on Wall Street, we, we don't buy anything. We only rent equipment. I said, oh, rent equipment. How's $300 a month? It cost me 100 bucks for the box and $50 for the video terminal. I said, how's $300 a month? Fantastic. 1,500 traders, 25 years. Okay. Yeah. 300 bucks a month. And now that's the story of New York Stock Exchange. It is amazing. From that, it went to the Philadelphia Stock Exchange, the American Stock Exchange, the CBOE, the Treasury market, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it just grew. Man, that is. All because, Larry, I read a bed sheet on a guy's desk. Yeah. And asked him, can I have it? You just never know where that opportunity and that inspiration is going to come from. But I think it's interesting to think back, and and this was an inherent trait that you carried. I mean, this was, you had the opportunity to retire, and you hated being retired at 34. Oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so, so there's I'm still so, there's not that, retired. I'm going on 87 years old, and I'm still not retired. Yeah, you're here today to, well, I mean, you're telling your story, but you and I, we connected because of your, your latest invention. And that's the Eli technology and the Eli codes and what you're doing there. It, it just, it's a testament to just this inherent burning desire to continue to improve and continue to drive forward and continue to inspire. And that's, it's amazing to hear that story and to hear how that continues to drive you today. And I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I thought you it's said just, that about me. <laughs> no, 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 no. But you know, you have to take action and implement. And you don't have to, and don't complicate things. Simplify, enhance, and it must provide a benefit. Now, here's my mantra, and I do it with my fingers. You have to be smart, daring, and different. When I say smart, that doesn't mean a PhD from Harvard. It means learn something new every day. Listen, pay attention. Everybody has knowledge to offer you. Okay? Be daring. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. That's where you're going to learn. You learn an awful lot. If you painted something the wrong color the first time, what do you do? Paint it a different color. Keep painting it another color until it's right. 
And the last thing, to be different, make sure whatever you do provides a benefit. If you're not providing a benefit, it's no more than a hobby. Smart, daring, and different. I love it. So the Eli technology, talk to me about that a little bit. That's my passion. All right. It came about quickly because I'm legally blind. Okay. I only have one eye and I can only see about 30% out of the other. But okay, I get through. I, I, there's lots of blind people. I'm not visually impaired. I'm only blind. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, I have a lot of blind friends and I was having um, breakfast with one of, a brilliant blind guy one day. And I came up with the idea of saying, what's on your wish list? And he said, if I could identify things I come in contact with every day and know the difference between my peanut butter and my jelly and my red shirt and my yellow shirt and everything in my pantry and so on and so forth. So that was right around the time that I learned all about QR codes. Okay. It wasn't really adopted yet, but a QR code is nothing but a URL to take you someplace. And I figured I got a great idea. If I can use URL codes, these QR codes, and each one being different, so I can have a pack of 100, each one being different, adhesive, and paste it on something that a blind person wants to identify and have that QR code take you to a spot in your cell phone memory and you can record what that thing is. So when you first get it, you can say, this is my aspirins, this is my blood pressure medication, and you paste it on the lid. Now every time you go in the medicine chest, so it worked great. In other words, it was an identifier for the blind. Yeah. And I figured okay, if I just use URLs as a doorway, if I use QR codes as a doorway into something, why can't I build something for the sighted world? And I came up with this idea of this, I call it the mobile marketing studio. It's a cloud-based studio that can hold anything you want with videos, images, audio, for any marketplace you want. In other words, just load it with everything and then give them one doorway, which is a QR code, mm-hmm. or one sample code that can be put onto anything. It can be put on advertisement. It can be put on promotional items. It can be put on podcasts. It can be put on, I've got a whole list here, hospitality for hotels, smart shelf tags. We're using it in the food stores to really identify a product. So it never changes. It's a constant code that takes you to the studio and you can change the studio with nothing more than just copy and paste. Very simple. You can have e-commerce. You can do buy and sell on it. You can do all sorts of things. You can have forms that you can have questionnaires and uh, those questionnaires will come back to your email. You can have data that you can send to your CRM system if it has a URL. So there's just a studio that has tremendous flexibility, easy to change in minutes. It updates instantaneously and the code never changes. So let's see, what else can I tell you about it? No, I I think that's that's a lot. It simplifies a lot of things because, I mean, we had an introduction to QR codes, I will say 10 years ago. I'm not sure the exact date when we first saw the QR code hit the market, but it was a very static code. It did one thing. It served one purpose. And when they showed up originally, there wasn't a lot of devices uh, in circulation that could even read them. So right. they kind of fell a little flat when they were first introduced. But I think if you caught the Super Bowl just a couple of weeks ago, there, you go. Uh, there was a commercial that was strictly, all it was, was a floating QR code. Yeah. And within seconds, the website that sponsored this particular advertisement got over 20 million hits to their website, and it was down within seconds. <laughs> so I think that, in, and, and it went to Coinbase, which is an exchange for, for sure. cryptocurrencies. Right. But that's all it was. It was just a floating and color-changing QR code. And it took, the, I think it won the, the, the commercial challenge of the Super Bowl. I mean, it won the Super Bowl by itself. Well, it's a beautiful concept because Apple and Android came out with your cell phone that you turn the camera on and the camera reads the code. And and the code, the way they were using it, it just took them to one particular site. Sure. We take you to our studio and the studio 
then you develop it very simply. It'll take you where you want your client or your customer or your patron to go. And it's like having them right in front of you face to face. You can have your video, you can have images, you can tell your story and it's dynamic. You can change it instantaneously with no technical expertise needed. You don't need a programmer. You don't need a webmaster. You just go log into the back end, and it's a copy and paste function. And it's so easy and it updates all over the world, wherever that code is. So it's a winner. Well, and that's, that's the amazing thing about it from what I've seen is that it updates dynamically. And traditionally, a QR code, again, was a very static one use. It served one purpose. It told you one thing. But with your Eli technology, that's evolved now to be able to be updated. And that's where the studio comes into play. Am I understanding that right? It's an app without an app. Okay. Okay. It's an app that you don't have to download because it's, it's an app. And how do you execute the app? You go wherever my code is, open up the door with your phone, and welcome to the studio. And the studio is your whole marketplace telling you what you want to tell your client, what you want to tell your, your educator or whoever, and you're taking them exactly where you want to go. And if you have updated information to update, in seconds you update it, and it updates it all over the world. If you have an advertisement that you want to come alive, you have that code in your advertisement, whether it be digital, whether it be analog, you scan it, your ad can now come alive. So there's so many different functions. You go to a minimum service hotel that doesn't have sufficient people to answer all your questions. Right now, the QR code is everywhere. It's in the room, it's in posters, it's everywhere. And you just scan that and it answers all the questions you would typically ask when you go to a hotel. Where's the local drugstore? Where can, where's a nice place I can go out to eat? Do you have something here or some? It, it just, it's the answer to business. Yeah, and, and the, the dynamic aspects of it make it so versatile because traditionally you'd have the QR code and although it could have answered the questions that you're posing here, if that information changed over time, you have to go through and you have to change everything else that had that QR code on it. Now, exactly. the QR code stays the same it's a it's one time, door. it's a one door. It takes you to the, wherever you want, want to go. So you can change that information on the back end using the same QR code. And that, that, that to me was, was mind blowing. I love that. Well, and, and then the technology here is it's so, well, first of all, it has e-commerce involved. And with that e-commerce, you can actually, if you see an ad on a magazine and you scan the code, we, you can actually buy now right from that code because we have e-commerce capability. The other thing that's so interesting is analytics. We keep count of every scan, where it's coming from on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly and annual basis. So you know if that activity, a promotional item, I mean, people are giving away pens and pencils and squishy balls and all these wonderful things with their name on it and their company's telephone and so on and so forth. Why not put a QR code on there to tell all about your company? Why not put on QR codes for your trade show information so that after they leave the trade show, they can go home and, and analyze the code and know all about what, what it is that they saw at the show. So it opens the door to your entire marketing studio. I just love the versatility that's built in there. So I'm confident that people hearing the podcast are, are going to be very inspired by your story and what you've shared with us today, but I have to guess they're going to want to know more. So as we go to wrap this thing up, tell people where they can find out more about Eli and Ron Klein. Okay. The best thing to do about finding out about Eli is go to Eli, that's E-L-I technology.us. And the reason it's Eli that whole thing started from because Eli was the, the prophet that read the Bible in Braille. And that's when I started it for the blind. But it's Eli Technology.us. And then if they want to find out anything about me, and by the way, I'm so proud I've got two minutes left. I've managed to get everything <laughs> across. I'm looking at my clock. I managed to do it and I didn't screw up. I got two minutes left. But uh, my website, is the grandfather of possibilities 
com, and I shortened it too. You can also get there by saying the number four ronkline.com. That points to the grandfather of possibilities because I always spell possibilities incorrectly. <laughs> but basically it's it's the grandfather of possibilities.com or the number four ron R O N Klein K L E I N dot com. But if that doesn't work, you better learn how to spell possibilities. That'll take you in. There's so much irony there in somebody that's created so much and contributed so much to the globe and you struggle with spelling the word possibilities. There's, there's definitely some humor there. (laughs) (laughs) I am willing to uh, send out my cell phone too. If anybody would like to talk to me or if they have an idea, they want to kick around or learn a little bit more. Um, person, you know, I, I don't guarantee I'm available every minute of the day, but I will get back to you either with a text or an email or a call. And my telephone number is 941-374-5739. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much, Ron. This has been an amazing hour. And I thought I knew you, but I learned a lot today, and I, I, I want to learn more, man. I want to learn more, so I'm going to have to check out four, the number four, ronkline.com, and learn as much as I possibly can, so I'm, I'm well, ready for our next get-together. You've just talked to the first senior millennial you've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning to join me thank you, and uh, record this amazing episode of the podcast. So thank you so very much, thank Ron. You, Larry. It was an absolute pleasure. I'm glad you enjoyed yourself. I know I did. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. If you found some value in today's episode, do me a favor, head down there, hit that subscribe button right now so I can continue to bring you this amazing content each and every Tuesday of the week, 6 a.m. Central Time. So until next Tuesday. You've just listened to You're the Boss with Larry Roberts. Join us for our next episode where we help you achieve your goals and live your absolute best life. Be sure to subscribe, connect, and share. Until next time, remember, you're the boss.